what you need may turn out to be a pair of scissors or a hen's egg or any of a number of remarkably uninteresting things till you find why you need it more than anything else on earth. That's how the short story titled What You Need by Lewis Paget begins. Paget's story was later adapted into an episode of Tales of Tomorrow, which aired on television in 1952. Maybe you remember the show. It's a story of Peter Talley, an aged proprietor of an old curio store. It's about how he knows exactly what every one of his customers needs, even if the customer doesn't know it himself. A reporter from a newspaper named Tom Carmichael stumbles into the store and realizes that the old man's ability to know what people need before they need it would be a good story for the newspaper. But the old man refuses to tell Carmichael his secret. Carmichael soon discovers that the old man has a secret machine in the back of his store where he can see into the future. Hoping to have him leave the store, the old man gives Carmichael a pair of scissors and tells him, this is what you need. Carmichael is confused, but he leaves with the scissors in his hand. Later, while talking to the editor of his newspaper about this, Carmichael's scarf gets caught in a printing press and starts choking him. Then he remembers the scissors that the old man gave him and pulls them out of his pocket Cuts himself free just in time. Well, now he's curious, so Carmichael returns to see the old man to find out what does he need next. The old man tells him that he must look into his machine to find out. So the old man goes into the back room, looks into this secret machine, and sees that sometime in the future, Carmichael will return to his store to kill the old man so that he can have the secret machine that sees into the future. So the old man tells Carmichael, go to this bar, and I will send you there what you need next. The old man sends Carmichael a box containing a pair of shoes with very slick bottoms. A drunken Carmichael quickly puts them on and runs outside uh, into the icy streets where he slips off the sidewalk to his death because he falls into the path of a delivery truck. The episode of Tales of Tomorrow ends with a shot of the old man's store sign which reads, I have what you need. The old man knew that Carmichael would return to kill him, so he had to put a stop to it. The old man knew what people needed even before they knew that they needed it. And if you're halfway awake this morning, that should remind you of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, as Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray in what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said this, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, that ought to give you some hope this morning, even if you didn't have enough coffee this morning. Jesus' words ought to inject some hope into you like caffeine, The fact that God knows what you need even before you ask him ought to make you want to ask him. 
And God doesn't need a special machine like Peter Talley in that episode of Tales of Tomorrow to tell him what you need. God knows already. God knew 10 million years ago what you would need today. He's got it all up here for every single one of us, for every one of his children. He knows exactly what you need four years, three months, two weeks, and one day from now. You see, that ought to make you want to pray. And that's why our big idea is this today. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Because he already knows. See, that's what we'll see in the last half of Ezra chapter 8. So turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 8. We'll look at verses 21 through 36. And in these verses, we'll see Ezra and the group of people that is with him leaving Persia, traveling back to Jerusalem. We will see them falling on their knees and telling God their needs. Look at verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord, the God who knows exactly what you need millions of years before you ever do. This is Ezra speaking. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra and the 6,000 plus people who are preparing to make that 900 plus mile journey from Persia back to Jerusalem here are seeking the Lord. It is going to be a long trip because they would have been able to only cover about nine miles per day. So they are busy loading the buses, and besides the Ziploc baggies full of snacks, and besides the diapers and wipes, and besides the cases of bottled water, and besides the maps, and besides the Levitical priests that we saw last week, what do you not want to forget before you take a long road trip? What's the one thing you better not forget? Ezra has the answer. Pray. That's what's happening here. They are praying and seeking God before they start a 900 plus mile journey back to Jerusalem. Dangers will be everywhere as they travel. Wild animals, robbers, ambushes along the way, sickness and injuries. There will most likely be many. Are we there yet? Uttered along the way by their kids. There will be lots of, mom, he's touching me. Tell him to scoot over to his side. Lots of, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. Lots of potty breaks. This will be a long road trip, a hard task, a dangerous journey. And so they appropriately seek the Lord. And how do Ezra and company seek the Lord? First, they pray. And secondly, they fast. They seek the Lord through fasting. I mean, they are serious. Now, why do I say that they are serious? Because anyone who fasts is serious. Anyone who chooses to say no to food and water and other things in order to focus on God and say, God, I need you more. Anyone who's willing to give up food, come on. They're serious because we all like to eat, don't we? 
Nobody is passive about fasting. You either do it or you don't. I think commentator Tiberius Rita is spot on when he says, fasting is almost non-existent in the Christian life today. Even though all the great men and women of the Bible and throughout church history were men and women of prayer and fasting. However, it seems ludicrous to talk about fasting in a time where there is a fast food place at every corner. Between 1861 and 1954, no book was written in English about fasting. Ezra and company are serious about seeking the Lord. And this is what Ezra and company are saying to God through their fasting. God, we need you more than anything. We need you more than anything in this world, God. We need you more than a double-double cheeseburger with grilled onions and with ketchup and mustard instead of spread. We need you more than a triple venti, non-fat, too sweet, and low-caramel macchiato. We need you more than anything that we put into our stomachs, God. So we will forsake food to remind us that the hunger we have for food should be the hunger that we have for you. We will forsake coffee to remind us that the craving that we have for Starbucks and Frappy Hour that some of you enjoyed this last week. That should be the craving that we have for you. That's serious. Ezra and company know that they have needs. They need God to protect them on this 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. They need their babies, their little kids, to make it there safely. They need to be reminded through fasting that they desperately need God. And they need you to know that when you get overwhelmed with the dangers, the difficulties, and the distresses, the anxieties, the agitations, the afflictions, the troubles, the trials, the traumas, the hurdles, the hiccups, the headaches, the problems, the pain, the predicaments, the strife, the strains, and the stresses of life, you should do what they did that day and fall on your knees and tell him your needs. If Ezra could preach this morning, I think this is what he'd say. I think this would be the big idea of his sermon. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. That's what Ezra and company are doing here at the last half of Ezra chapter 8. And by falling on their knees and telling God their needs, they are doing something else. They're humbling themselves. By falling on their knees and telling God their needs, they're demonstrating their humility. Now, it may not seem like a big deal, but how many of us start our day assuming that we can handle everything that comes our way? Most of us are just functional disciples. We just roll out of bed and think we got it covered. We don't really call on God unless something big comes up and then we need him really bad. And we can call on him in those times. But the truly mature disciple knows that he needs Jesus just as much on his day off when he has nothing planned just as much then as the day that he has meetings, stressful meetings all day long. Ezra and company know that they need God. And that's why they are fasting and praying. They are seeking God to give them a safe trip and to protect them and their children and their goods as they make this journey back to Jerusalem. And they are seeking the appropriate person. God. Yahweh. And they were trusting in the covenant-keeping God that we saw last week 
And that's why they didn't ask King Artaxerxes for a police escort back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 23. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. See, they had already told King Artaxerxes that Yahweh keeps covenant, that God is faithful, that he's going to protect him. So they couldn't go back to Artaxerxes and say, would you be willing to provide a police escort back, please? Because we're a little bit worried. I know we told you that Yahweh, the God that we serve, keeps covenant, Artaxerxes. I know we told you that his hand is over our life for our good and his hand is against our enemies. But we're not really sure if he's going to come through for us this time. So can you help us out? You see, they couldn't say that. So Ezra and company trusted in their own statement to King Artaxerxes. They trusted in their own statement of faith that God's good hand would be upon his covenant people and that his hand would be against their enemies. Now surely Ezra would agree with John Calvin's statement. He said this in a sermon that he preached on Micah chapter 4. He said, furthermore, Micah does not say that God will reign only for a day or for a brief time, but forever. For if we thought that after helping us today, God would withdraw tomorrow and leave us in doubt as to when he might ever help us again, what sort of consolation would that be? Even if God should help us for a season or two, but we should not know about the future, we would still gain nothing. But when God assures us that his assistance will last to the very end, indeed without end, and that in life and death we shall feel his protection and safekeeping, what greater assurance could we want? See, Ezra would agree with John Calvin. And Ezra would agree with Charles Spurgeon who said, It is folly to think the Lord provides grace for every trouble but the one you are in today. Ezra knew that Yahweh's assistance would last to the end and that in life and death, he would feel Yahweh's protection. And Ezra knew that it was foolish to think that Yahweh provided grace for every trouble except the one that Israel was in that day. So Ezra proceeded to lead this group of 6,000 people across dangerous roads because he had a greater assurance than the king's royal police escort. Ezra had Yahweh himself, the sovereign Lord of the universe. So what do you do if you have refused the king's royal police escort, his band of soldiers and horses, and yet you know you are about to embark on a 900-mile, four-month dangerous trek across the ancient Near East with all of your little ones? You let your assurance in Yahweh's protection move you to fast and to pray. You fast and you pray. In other words, when you are so overwhelmed with the dangers, the difficulties, the distresses, the anxieties, the agitations, the afflictions, the troubles, the trials, the traumas, the hurdles, the hiccups, the headaches, the problems, the pain, the predicaments, the strife, the strains, and the stresses of life, you fall on your knees and you tell him your needs. You fall down on your knees, grace, and you just start unloading all of your needs on God. Now, that does not mean that you are passive and all you do is pray. This does not mean that you only pray and you never do anything else. 
Trust him? Yes, absolutely yes. But you may need to take action as well. And the action that Ezra and company took was to fast and to pray. They knew God would protect them, but they still fasted and prayed. Ezra's saying, God's going to be faithful, but we're going to fast. God's going to protect, but we're going to pray. You see, there's a fine line between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And that's what we just saw, and that's what we will see in the next section. We see that God listened to their prayers, as verse 23 states. But Ezra does something, too. Ezra does his part. Look at verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels were 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Ezra trusts God. Ezra absolutely believes that Yahweh is going to protect them and bring them safely to Jerusalem. But he also takes responsibility to appoint 12 priests. In fact, the Hebrews, he's made them holy. He set them apart. He gave these men the task of guarding the vessels and the offerings that Yahweh was guarding. Scholars estimate that the silver weighed between 19 and 25 tons and the gold weighed about three tons. So Ezra appointed men to guard and to drive this fleet of Brinks armored trucks back to Jerusalem. Yes, Ezra prayed, but he also appointed. He trusted God to get the people and the gold and the silver to Jerusalem safely, but he also appointed priests to guard and watch over the silver and the gold that God was watching over. He didn't just leave the gold and silver laying in the back of some pickup truck uncovered and say, God is sovereign. He set apart, he made holy men to guard the gold and the silver, and the bronze that Yahweh was guarding. And here you have a beautiful marriage between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, this doesn't solve all the conundrums of life when trying to decide God's will for your life, does it? See, Ezra had all these unknowns, four months of unknown as they travel. But it gives us a guide you trust God and then you do what you have to do. That's the best, that I, best advice that I can give you for discerning God's will in any situation. You trust God and then you do what you can do. Do you need direction in your life? There's uncertainty in your future? You pray, you fast, you humble yourself, you trust God. You do what Ezra did at the beginning of this passage. Pray, fast, humble yourself, trust God, 
And then you do what Ezra did in the second part of this passage. You do what you know you need to do. For Ezra, it was the task of assigning uh, these priests to guard all of the gold and silver that God was guarding. Ezra had to find some men to guard the treasures so that the silver and the gold would arrive safely in Jerusalem. And so Ezra did that. Now, for you, it may just be, I need to wash the dishes today. I don't know what God's will is for me in this situation. I don't know what's happening in life, but I do know this. I need to do the dishes today. I need to pay the bills today. I need to mail some letters. I need to send out some applications. Or it might be as simple as, I don't know God's will for this situation, but I do know this. I need to read the Bible to my kids today, and I need to love my spouse. I need to make dinner for my family And I need to feed the dog. Sometimes that's all you know that you need to do. And you do those things that you know that you need to do today. And then you trust God for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You do what you know you need to do today. Discerning God's will for your life might be as easy as, I need to do the dishes, tuck my kids into bed, and then take a shower. That may be all that you know to do. But do it. And God will do his part to lead and guide you day by day. And as each day goes by and you do what you know you need to do that day, then God will slowly unveil his will for your life. And it might just be that you need to brush your teeth that day. That's all you know to do. I need to brush my teeth. You need to brush your teeth. Fifth graders, sixth graders, you need to brush your teeth. It's God's will for your life. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes God just leads us one day at a time through the very mundane things of life. Sometimes God just leads us one day at a time through the very mundane things of life. Sometimes God just leads us one day at a time through the very mundane things of life. Sometimes God just leads us one day at a time through the very mundane things of life. Sometimes God just leads us one day at a time through the very mundane things of life. God was leading Ezra through the very mundane task of loading up all these buses and finding men to care for and to keep track of a bunch of silver and gold bowls. Not a very exciting ministry, is it? But God was working through it. Assign men to take care of these dishes. That's all he knew he had to do. It's not an exciting ministry. It's not an exciting thing. It's not any more exciting than brushing your teeth. Find some men to guard the dishes. But he did what he needed to do that day. And God was leading them. And I'm sure as Ezra got up to brush his teeth that day, he saw a post-it note that he had put on his bathroom mirror that simply said, fall on your knees And tell him your needs. Ezra knew when he got up that morning, what I need to do today is to fall on my knees and tell Yahweh my needs. And that's exactly what Ezra did. Ezra prayed and then he did the practical, mundane thing of loading the buses and appointing some priests to guard and watch over a bunch of dishes. Now watch what happened. Look at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. 
We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. God protected them. And they arrive safely. 6,000 plus people who have no weapons and are armed only with some dishes arrive safely. 6,000 people with around 49,000 pounds of silver and 7,500 pounds of gold vessels made a 900 plus mile, four month long road trip with cranky kids who kept saying, are we there yet? Now imagine the scene, 6,000 plus people with lots of kids running around for four months. They are unarmed, only armed with some silver and gold dishes. Where would you put your trust? Have you ever seen a war movie where somebody went to battle using a gold bowl as a weapon? Where would you put your trust? For Ezra, it was God. It was Yahweh, the faithful God who keeps covenant. And Yahweh was faithful. The hand of God was on his people as they traveled, as Ezra said. And in verse 1, he says, we did not get ambushed along the way. Now, we don't know if they were never attacked at all or if they were attacked and they pulled out these gold bowls and said, hi and the enemy ran. We don't know. But either way, God protected them. So they arrive and they spend three days trying to get hotel rooms for 6,000 people. And then on the fourth day, they take all the gold and silver to the temple to weigh it out. And after a 900 plus mile, four month trek, they unload this fleet of Brinks armored trucks and all the silver and the gold is still there. Evidence of God's good hand on his people. Now you would think that they would have No major needs at this point because they have made it all this way. They put all the silver and gold away. You would think at this point they've got no more major needs in their life. But if you thought that, you're wrong. You would be wrong to think that they have no major needs now that they had arrived in Jerusalem, the city of God. Why? Because they have major needs as they arrive. Just like they had major needs when they left, just like they had major needs in their life during their trip, God's people always have major needs. Look at verse 35 and 36. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. So what do they do when they show up? They worship. They offer sacrifices. This is appropriate because Yahweh protected them on their journey. Ezra and company know that they needed to worship the Lord for getting them home safely. So I imagine this like massive group text went out amongst these 1,500 families. And you know the group text where everybody starts responding and you're just pulling your hair out. Imagine 1,500 families responding to Ezra's text which said, Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Come to Jerusalem, to the temple. We are going to fall on our knees and tell him our needs. And then everybody starts saying, amen, Ezra, you bet. Blink, blink, blink on the phone. Drives me nuts, group text. Sorry, 
has nothing to do with the passage, I don't think. And they offered up their needs to Yahweh. 197 animals for sacrifice. All of these sacrifices were proof that they had major spiritual needs. All of these animals were offered up as a burnt offering, verse 35 says. And that's the key to showing us that they had major needs, the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, the animal was offered up on the, off, on the altar and burned up completely signifying that Yahweh had accepted their sacrifice. So 197 animals get their throats slit, and the the blood is drained out and splashed on the side of the altar, put on the altar, and they're all burned up completely, signifying that the Lord had accepted their sacrifice. The Hebrew word for a burnt offering is olah. According to scholar B.A. Levine, the Olah, the burnt offering, was a signal to God that his worshipers desired to bring their needs to his attention. So by offering 197 animals on the altar, they're saying, God, we have needs and we want you to pay attention to us. He continues. Its purpose was to secure an initial response from him. God, here are 197 animals. We want your attention. We want you to respond to our needs. I'm preaching in between. Sorry. He continues God is perceived as breathing the aromatic smoke of the Ola, the burnt offering, and responding favorably to the overtures of his devotees. Ezra and company were bringing burnt offerings to the Lord. Ezra and company were sending a signal to Yahweh that they had needs and they wanted Yahweh to pay attention. Ezra and company were bringing all of their needs to Yahweh's attention because they are still a needy people. Do you know that grace? Do you understand that we are always a weak people, always a needy people? Did you know that you came in these doors this morning, maybe hopped up on coffee and caffeine, but still very much weak. Ray Ortland says, our problem is not just weaknesses. More profoundly, our problem is weakness. Weakness is not just one more experience alongside our other experiences. Weakness is the platform on which we have all of our experiences. Weakness is a pervasive presence in all we are and do. It will not always be so, but for now it is. Every Sunday I am a weak man preaching to weak people. Admonition has its place, but what weak people need more than admonition is help. For weak people to live the Christian life in a way that is humane and sustainable, rather than defeating and shaming, we need good news more than good challenge. Weak sinners continually reassured by grace will accomplish more for Christ than they would if continually confronted by demand. I am thankful that the Spirit meets us not in our strength but in our weakness where alone His help enters in. We are always weak. 
We always have needs. That's what the burnt offering represented, bringing our needs to God's attention because God alone is sufficient. And that's why Jesus offered his life for us because Paul says in Romans 5, we were weak and we are weak. He says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The burnt offering was all about the worshiper bringing their needs to God's attention and God accepting the sacrifice and being pleased with the aroma. And the burnt offering was pointing towards Jesus who, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think the apostle Paul would tell you that because Jesus made a way to God through his sacrifice, you should fall on your knees and tell him your needs. And that's exactly what the writer of Proverbs fifteen eight says. The Lord abhors the sacrifices of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. The Hebrew reads, the prayer of the upright is his pleasure. That means your prayers, Christian, bring God pleasure. Think about that. Your prayers, my prayers, however weak and juvenile they are, they actually bring God pleasure. It brings God tremendous pleasure when you bring your needs to his attention. Think about that. What a beautiful marriage here is that you have needs right now. You have needs right now. What a beautiful marriage. And God says, bring them to me and tell me about them because I'm sufficient and it brings me pleasure. What a beautiful marriage of our weakness and the pleasure it brings God. That ought to make you want to pray. That ought to make you fall on your knees and tell him your needs. It brings God pleasure when we alert him to our needs. It brings him delight. He loves to hear us say, here's what's going on, help me. He enjoys it. Because he's the only one who is sufficient to help us in our weakness and to help us with our needs. God loves to see you come to him through the burnt offering of his son, Jesus Christ, and bring your needs to his attention. He loves for you to bring your needs to his attention. He loves for you to bring your needs to his attention. He loves for you to bring your needs to his attention. He loves for you to bring your needs to his attention. That's how our Heavenly Father works. And so today, we don't need a sermon on mothers. We need a sermon on our Father in heaven. We don't need a sermon about mothers today. We need to have our hearts and minds directed to our Heavenly Father. Honor the mothers in your life. Yes, you need to do that. But Mother's Day is not as neat and tidy as Hallmark cards would lead us to believe. For some, Mother's Day is hard. It's difficult. There's pain. Some mothers have lost children. This is not an easy day for them. Some mothers were horrible mothers. 
and we don't think fondly of them. Some of you, maybe your mother passed. A family in our church had a mother pass on Friday. This is not a day of celebration for them. What we need today is not a sermon about how to be a better mom. You don't need another sermon on Proverbs 31, ladies, telling you need to be a Proverbs 31 lady because you can never be a Proverbs 31 lady. Amen? Have you read that? Who can do that? Who can manage a home, have a business, and be involved in all the affairs of civil life and involved serving everywhere? You're not called to be a Proverbs 31. Can I talk to the moms for a minute? I didn't do this in the last service, but man, I get worked up over this. Ladies, I'm gonna let you off the hook today. You don't have to be a Proverbs 31 lady. You cannot be a Proverbs 31 lady. Proverbs 31 is a picture of lady wisdom. Proverbs 31 is saying if you get the wisdom that all of the book of Proverbs has been talking about, it will affect your family, it will affect your social life, society. Proverbs 31 is this great hymn to lady wisdom saying to every one of us, get wisdom because it will change your family. It will change society. Ladies, you do not need to be told that you need to be a Proverbs 31 woman because there's really no talk about her relationship with her husband and there's no talk about her relationship with her God. What Proverbs 31 is saying is get wisdom. Sorry, that's a rant. I want you ladies to be let off the hook here. This man got it easy. Nothing in there about us. And there's a lot in the Bible about us, but you know what I mean. All right, see what happens when you deviate from your notes? Better than a how to be a better mom sermon, we need a sermon about our Heavenly Father because he takes pleasure in our prayers. He listens to us. And isn't that what we all need today? The wonderful reality that we saw earlier is that God already knows what our needs are before we even know them. That ought to make you want to fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Maybe we should do that right now. Maybe we should do something right now that will bring our father pleasure. Imagine that God's redeemed people bringing him pleasure. I think we ought to bring him pleasure pleasure right now and how radical and crazy is it that we a weak frail needy people can bring the all-knowing all-powerful God pleasure so are you overwhelmed today with the dangers the difficulties the distresses the anxieties the agitations the afflictions the troubles the trials the traumas the hurdles the hiccups the headaches the problems the pain the predicaments the strife the strains and the stresses of life well guess what God wants you to bring all of that to his attention because it brings him pleasure so what are we waiting for If you're able to, get on your knees right now where you're at or just sit where you are if you can't and let's bring some of our needs. You bring some of your needs today to his attention. Then we'll stand and sing in a moment. Find a spot. You can do it right where you're at in the aisles. Come down to the front. There's no need to be embarrassed. We're all weak and needy here today. So let's take a few minutes to fall on our knees and tell him our needs. We'll pray for a few minutes and then we'll close And sing a song about how great our God is. So are you ready to bring the living God pleasure? Are you ready to bring a smile to your heavenly father's face? He takes delight. He takes pleasure in your prayers. 
that ought to make you want to pray and to bring him pleasure right now. So let's do it. Let's fall on our knees and tell him our needs. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help in time of need. Let's take a moment. You take a moment and tell your heavenly father about your needs.